Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this special episode, we'll be interviewing author J.D. Barker. J.D. is the author of Forsaken and The Fourth Monkey, which is a detective uh, narrative about a cop who's trying to track down a murderer called The Fourth Monkey Killer, who uh, kills his victims in a pretty gruesome way, and it also goes into the backstory of the killer via diary entries. JD's next project is going to be a Dracula prequel, which he's co-writing with a member of Bram Stoker's family. And uh, so this book also has the blessing of the Stoker estate. And that project is going to be upcoming next year sometime. And he can't share a lot of details with us because uh, he is under some secrecy, but uh, we'll see what he can share with us today. How are you, JD? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're great. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, we talk about books and adaptations and all that so much, but it's great to actually talk to someone who is in that process right now and kind of has some experience in that field. And I'm I'm just thrilled when they let me out of my office. (laughs) <laughs> spend a lot of time in that little room staring at my Mac, so it's nice to get out and, and see other people every once in a while. Oh, we're glad. <laughs> so should we talk about uh, Fourth Monkey a little bit first? Yeah, or? absolutely. Okay. I actually got to read it. I managed to get the time in between our other uh, weekly episode or bi-weekly episode books, and I just wanted to say it's a really good book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, thank you. And on top of that, my parents might be your new biggest fans. Because <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I gave it to them, and uh, they just they love detective stories, and so they just ate it up immediately. They thought it was great. Oh, that's cool. I, I really like, that's one of the things I really appreciate about social media. It's like, I can actually see that kind of thing happening. Like I get somebody who finishes the book and first of all, they, they read it in like a day, which is frustrating because it took a little longer than a day to write, but they read it in like a day and it's like, I love this book. I gave it to my mom. And then like, you know, two days later, I see a post from her mom. I love this book. I gave it to my neighbor. It's like, you can kind of follow that trail, which is really cool. Yeah. There are definitely books like that where we've passed it along the trail, like through your parents, through me, down to my sister. We just have like passed it down. This is definitely one of those books. So uh, I think I read online that uh, The Fourth Monkey is in the process of being adapted. Is that right? Yeah, we actually sold the the film and TV rights for that while we were trying to sell the publishing rights. It all kind of played out the, the same day. Um, that, that whole novel was a little little crazy. Um, I, I guess I'll go back to the beginning of it. Um, I, I, I self-published my first book, which I guess we can talk about in a little bit. But with this one, um, I, I actually intended to self-publish it too because I did pretty good with the first one. And my wife convinced me to, to go ahead and query some agents on it because I didn't have one at the time. Um, so I queried 53 agents, and this was February 2015. And w- within a week, I had eight offers of representation. Um, for that book. And I ended up signing with a, a woman out of Colorado named Kristen Nelson, um, which is a, a, she's phenomenal. Um, she represents a couple friends of mine, Hugh Howie, um, Josh Mallerman, um, couple, you know, some really, really good names. Um, and when she took it out to the, the publishers, at the same time, I was getting phone calls from the film studios. And it, it almost, it reminded me of, um, you know, those movies where you've got a kid in high school who plays football really well, and all of a sudden all the colleges are calling trying to recruit them. That, that's what it was like. I was sitting in my tiny little office in our apartment, and I was just getting phone calls you know, in between regular work calls, because I was still working a regular day job. Um, and, you know, I would take a work call. And then at two o'clock, I had to talk to Ron Howard. 
And then I would have to do something work related. And after that, I had to talk to the guy who did the Born Identity movies. And then it was Putnam or it was this publisher or that publisher. Um, it was crazy. Um, but the book ended up selling uh, to HMH here in the States and HarperCollins in, in the UK and then a bunch of other ones around the world. Uh, and at the same time, we were talking to the film studios and we ended up going with um, CBS Films because um, they were the only one who could actually do two things. They could do a feature film and a television show. Um, one of the things that really, you know, kind of took me from left field when I, I started talking to the film producers, um, you know, they started going into all these different things they would have to take out of the book in order to get it down to two hours, um, which is not something I ever considered. I mean, when you're a writer, you know, all you want is a movie. It's like you always want that next big thing. So it's like, I got a book done. I got it published. I want a movie. Um, and then you start talking to the film producers and they're like, yeah, we can make a movie, but we got to take this out and take that out and take this out. And then I started talking to some of the television people um, and television has changed tremendously, you know, with Netflix and things like that over the last couple of years um, and started going into what they can do and they can actually expand on the story, um, which is a, another whole dynamic. Um, so we ended up with, with CBS and they're doing a, a full, I think it's 13 episodes um, for CBS All Access, um, you know, which allows them to tell the, the complete story, which I was really thrilled with. Um, it's being directed by Mark Webb, who did Amazing Spider-Man. Um, it's being writ uh, written by Taylor Elmore, who did Justified. Um, so we got a really cool team behind it and it's, it's fun to just kind of watch, you know, it's almost like handing off your child to somebody and, and they just kind of run with it and, and see, you get to watch how it grows and how it, how it changes. That's super exciting, especially because there's been, um, so many good series lately that have been based on books. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale, Big Little Lies won like all the Emmys this year. And so I kind of see that that's almost like the future of book adaptations now is almost like going to TV series. And I think there's a lot more you can do with that in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I look at it almost like from a marketing standpoint. Um, you know, it's almost like a long advertisement for your book. And with feature films, you know, they're, they're obviously great. I mean, it's in the theaters, but it, it's a very, you know, quick hit kind of thing. Um, you'll see book sales spike, but then they, you know, they fall off fairly quickly when the book leaves the theaters and they come, they hit again when it hits DVD and Blu-ray on uh, pay-per-view and that kind of thing. And, and then it kind of, you know, trickles off and disappears. But the books that are being made into shows for Netflix and some of the, you know, Hulu and some of these other services, you know, they basically live forever. You know, somebody can start watching it today. Somebody could start watching it five years from now and the experience is exactly the same. And those same people run out and buy the books. So they seem to, it doesn't hit quite as hard and as fast, but it's more of a, a slow, steady, um, steady stream as far as book sales go. So I, I really do like that medium. Yeah, Mark Webb is uh, an interesting choice that I think is really exciting because he directed one of my favorite movies, uh, 500 Days of Summer, yep. which he does some really just interesting uh, filmmaking things with to tell a story. And uh, for Fourth Monkey, that's kind of a, a story that jumps back and forth and is kind of nonlinear in a way. I think that's uh, I think he could do some really interesting things with it. Yeah, I can't wait to see where he goes with it. He um, he just directed um, Gifted, which is another really good. Movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that one a lot. I, I haven't seen anything of his that I don't like. So fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do um, the TV show rights play into? Because I know you've said that there's going to be um, at least two more books in the fourth monkey series. How is that going to play out? Or do you, are you not sure yet? It, it's really hard to say. So the way the contracts work, CBS bought the rights to the fourth monkey. Um, they also own the rights to those particular characters. So they've got a choice to make. They can either follow along with the book series, you know, they can, and, basically buy book two, buy book three, and whatever else I produce in, in that, 
that environment. Um, or they can just take the characters and run with their own storyline. Um, similar to what you've seen happen with Game of Thrones. You know, sometimes they, they end up filming faster than the author can write, or they want to take it in a different direction than the author may go. Um, Dexter was the same thing. If you've read the Dexter books, they're different from the TV series. Um, you know, so sometimes it, it takes on a life of its own. I, I read somewhere that, you know, from an author's standpoint, the book itself is really the only thing that belongs to you. It's 100% you. Um, you know, even when they record an audiobook, now you've got your text, but there's a narrator. So you've got their take on it. So it, it's no longer just you. It, it's something else. Um, and when you sign a film or a TV contract, um, you, you're basically handing your, your child off to somebody else and say, OK, I raised it up to five years. You're going to take it from from six to ten. Good luck. Um, and, you know, it, for the most part, it's, it's a fairly hands off process. I've, I've had a few phone calls with the director and with the, uh, the writers and things like that and some emails back and forth. Um, but for the most part, that's that's happening all on its own. It's not something I'm involved with on a day to day basis. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions was if you get to choose your level of involvement or is that something that the producers come to you and say, because I know different authors sometimes are very hands off with their adaptations. Some are like uh, if they don't write the screenplay, then they're like heavily involved in the production of it. And I didn't know if that was something that was like your decision or their decision after you sell the rights. It, it really, it's something that gets talked about for sure when you do those initial phone calls with the producers and directors. Um, and I, I think at that point, they're really trying to feel you out to see, you know, what they, what your involvement or what you would like it to be. Um, I, I'm guessing from their standpoint, they probably don't want you too involved. Um, you know, Mark Webb comes with a team of people that he's, he's familiar with, people that he's worked with before. And every other producer that I've talked to is kind of along the same lines. They have a close, tight-knit group of people that they know they can interact with. They know they can get this project done from, from A to Z with these people. So if you throw an author in there that they don't know, you know, all of a sudden that's a monkey wrench in their, in their system. And there's timelines involved. There's money involved. There's all these different things. And, and nobody likes a, a monkey wrench. Um, so I'm, I'm there, I'm available to them if, if they need me for something, but for the most part, I'm, you know, I'm really not that involved. And, and honestly, I mean, I'm already, I've written the sequel to fourth monkey. Um, I've written the, the Dracula prequel is coming out. I'm almost done with another book right now while they're still working on the, the scripts for fourth monkey, you know? So if I were to you know, get involved in that process, I don't know what that would mean for my writing. And, and ultimately that's where my focus is. It's all about that next book. You already kind of mentioned that uh, that process of thinking about your book as a movie and then kind of changing your thinking to a TV show. But did you have a preference for um, The Fourth Monkey or for your other books, or does it kind of just depend on the book and how you could see it as being adapted? Like, would it be better as a movie or a TV show? It, you know, it, with The Fourth Monkey, I really just didn't know any better. Um, even with Forsaken, I've always visualized that and seen it as a movie. Um, but when you talk to people that actually make TV shows and how they can you know change it or they can adapt it and they can, you know, take this character and, and strengthen them or do this and do that. Um, it, it really does open your eyes to a lot of those things. Um, the Dracula prequel, I see that as being just a feature film for sure, but there's definitely, you know, areas that they could, they could branch off in. Um, and the book that I'm writing now, I, I actually see that more of a television show. I, I see the book as a catalyst where it, it, it almost like a, you know, the premiere episode or the first couple of episodes, and then it goes off, you know, kind of develops its own thing. Um, from a writing standpoint, I think it really has a lot to do with where you leave those characters. Um, you know, if you leave people wondering what, what's happening next and, and you leave things very open-ended, I, I think it fits for a television show a lot more than a movie. Now, you uh, talked a little bit about you uh, self-published your first book, Forsaken. Uh, what, were, what led you to make that decision and... What did you learn from it if you were like giving advice to any other uh, up and coming authors? Well, that, that was based solely on rejection. 
<laughs> so I, I wrote that. I, I spent about 20 years working as a book doctor and a ghostwriter, so helping other people get their books published. And I, I feel that that was really, it taught me a lot. I, I learned what worked and what didn't work and, and basically how to, you know, to write a good, strong book. Um, so when I sat down to write my first book on my own, Forsaken, you know, I, I knew that I had a solid novel. Uh, but when, you know, I, I had no clue how to do the marketing side of that, how to get an agent, how to, you know, get a publisher and that whole end of it. Um, I wrote a blanket query letter that I sent off to about 200 different agents. I didn't follow any of the instructions that they have on their websites, you know, because they all have their own little thing, like send me the first three chapters, send me the first this number of words, um, double space it, single space it, Word document, PDF document, attachment, not attachment. I didn't pay attention to any of that. <laughs> I wrote one query letter. I created a PDF attachment. I sent it off to all these agents and just, you know, figured, well, whatever happens, happens. This is a killer book. They're going to want it. Um, and, and I had an odd angle there, too, because in that novel, I had to, um, Stephen King helped me out a little bit with that. There was a, a journal in the novel, and I had to explain where the wife bought it. And just to get the manuscript done, I wrote that she bought it at Needful Things, Stephen King's store. Fully expected to have to change it, but when he read the book, he gave me permission to use it, which was awesome. Um, so I figured that I'd be a shoe-in. You know, any agent that sees that, you know, Stephen King gave his blessing, read this, that, and, you know, here, publish it. You know, I, I thought for sure it was just going to fly right through the system, but that just didn't happen. Um, I ended up, like I said, I sent off about 200 or so query letters. I got a couple offers of representation. Ultimately, I had a couple offers from publishing deals, but the advances were really small. I think the largest one was like $5,000, um, which just to me wasn't worth it. Um, so I decided that I would just use Forsaken. I knew it was a solid book. Um, I would try and use it to make some waves and get on the radar of the, the traditional publishers and, and try to make some noise. Um, so I decided to self-publish it, but I knew if I did that, I would have to, you know, follow the model that's been set by the traditional publishers. I couldn't just hit the publish button on Amazon and, and call it a day. Um, I wanted something that would compete with, you know, the books coming out of Random House, coming out of these big guys. I didn't want people to be able to tell the difference. I wanted them to look at my book and look at the, you know, one that's on the bestseller list today and, and not be able to see that, you know, one is self-published and one's not. Um, so I hired professional editors, professional cover designers, professional formatters. Um, I had to spend some money, and it's something you, you really need to do if you want to make it in that world. Uh, but ultimately, the book came out on November um, 14th of 2014. It came out as a hardcover, a softcover, a mass market paperback, and an audiobook all at the same time. Uh, and, it, and I think you know, the fact that it did look like a traditionally published book is what really helped it sell as well as it did. How did you uh, approach Stephen King with this idea of using a character from his book? Because that's a really interesting idea, and I'm just curious how, how you got in contact with him about it. I, I did the one thing you are never, ever supposed to do. We, we hopped in the car, and we went to his house. <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. Anybody listening right now, don't ever show up on the doorstep of, of somebody unannounced. Um, it, it was kind of a weird situation because, you know, again, I fully expected to have to change the store in, in the novel. It was a very small part of the story. Uh, but my wife read it, and she's like, no, this is great. Just get his permission to use it. And I'm like, how do you get Stephen King's permission to do anything? Um, we were in Florida at the time, and he's got a house that's about 10 miles away from my parents' house. So we printed up the manuscript, figured we'll hop in the car and head over to Steve's house. I'll probably be outside gardening or something. I'll show it to him. You know, he'll give me the blessing, and, you know, we'll move on, go grab lunch, and, and that's, the, you know, we call it a day. Um, so we ended up driving out there. He, he lives on, um, in Florida, they've got these things off the coast called Keys. Um, they're sort of like islands. Uh, he lives on Casey Key. And when you go over the bridge, there's this tiny little bridge. And if you make a left, you go to the public portion where all the restaurants and the beaches and stuff are. And if you make a right, you go to the entire 
half that Stephen King owns. And, <laughs> and immediately there's like a private drive sign. Then there's a no trespassing sign, then another sign. And then there was a gate and then another gate. And, you know, we got a half mile into this and I'm staring up in the trees watching for snipers. I'm like, this is probably a bad idea. <laughs> um, so we, we turned around, we went to a little restaurant and I emailed a friend of mine uh, who knows King pretty well and told him what we were up to. And he, he's like, uh, no, don't stalk Steve. He hates that. Here's an email address. Send it over there. If he likes it, you'll hear back from him. If you don't hear anything, that means it probably sucks. Leave the guy alone. Um, so I sent an email over and a, a couple days later, I got an email back from King saying, I love this. Go ahead and use it. Uh, let me know if you need anything like that kind of thing. Um, I, I stared at that, that email for probably about four months, oh my um, God. expected, you know, to get a retraction, you know, go, Oh, I actually meant to send that to John Grisham. Um, you know, for, <laughs> forget that you, you ever saw that, but you know, the retraction never came. Um, so I, you know, I put the book out there and, you know, went from there. Well, he must have liked it because I know he's read portions of it, right? Of Forsaken, yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. Uh, Stephen King, just because I know you're a big fan and we are too, seems to be going through a bit of a renaissance right now in terms of adaptations. Uh, you know, it just came out, which was huge. And uh, he's got a couple um, Netflix uh, movies coming out. And he's got, he had uh, the, what am I think? The Dark Tower movie. Right. What, what do you think is like connecting with his work right now with people that is kind of causing this? I, I think it's the work itself. I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of writers groups. Um, I've got two and a half degrees. Uh, I, I've got one in information technology, another one in business, half a degree in psychology. I get paid to make shit up now. So like that, <laughs> that meant absolutely nothing. Um, but the one thing that I get asked a lot is, you know, what type of reference material do I use? What do I fall back on? And there, there's two books that are always on my desk. One of them is Stephen King's On Writing. And the other one is Strunk and White, um, which is a very small, you know, it's only about a half inch thick, a quarter inch thick or so book on, on English, you know, grammar, um, you know, basically the, the U.S., the rules. Um, and, and honestly, that's all you need. If you can tell a story, you need those two things. He, he explains the process. That book explains, you know, how to properly format a sentence um, and, and you're good to go. You can't teach somebody how to actually tell a story, though. Um, you can teach them all the rules in the world, but you can't actually tell somebody how to creatively make up a story. And with King, you know, I think he's, you know, I, I go back and I read some of his old stuff all the time. I just finished rereading uh, Pet Cemetery the other day. Um, I just read Firestarter again for the like gazillion time. Uh, and, and just the novels themselves are so tight. Yeah, the characters are so vivid. And I think those stories, you know, even though they're set in those particular ones back in the 70s and 80s, you know, they, they, they do translate very well. And, and it, but it's all about characters. Uh, and that's one of the things I always preached when I was doing the book doctor thing. If your characters aren't strong, your, your story's not going to matter. Um, when I wrote Fourth Monkey, you know, Sam Porter, the lead detective in that book, I, I knew him inside and out. I, I could take him and set him in, in Disney World if I wanted to. And I, <laughs> I could tell you what ride he would run to first or what he would buy at the concession stand. You know, things that have absolutely nothing to do with the story, but things that make him a real person. And once you have your characters at that level in your mind, you can drop them in any particular scenario and just let that scenario play out. And you know, when I'm writing, when I feel like I'm actually on a stride, I feel almost like I'm watching the movie, you know, watching the story take place in my head and I'm just documenting it. I'm just kind of there to, to write down what happens and that's it. And I think that's when it works the best. And I think Stephen King's writing is, is so effortless. It, you know, it feels that way. It may not be effortless for him. I'm sure he's putting a lot of time and effort into it. But when you read it, you almost forget that you're reading. You know, there's nothing in there that trips you up. And I, I think that's why they last as long as they do. So what is uh, your writing process? Do you like to write every day and just kind of get it on paper? Or what, what's your style? Yeah, I write. Um, I've been finding now that I do this full time, first thing in the morning seems to be best for me. Um, when I had a day job, I used to write when I got home from work. 
Um, and I eventually changed that to writing before work. So I would get up about 4.30 in the morning. I would knock out words before I actually went into the office. Um, but And, and now I, I get up um, at the crack of about 8.30 or so, <laughs> you know, a little easier than it used to be. Um, grab my coffee and I head straight to my desk and, and I don't get up from that chair until I've got at least two to 3,000 words every single day. Wow. Um, and I, I think writing every day is, is key. Um, you know, when I was working full time, I, I still made sure that I got at least two to 300 words every single day. Cause I, I knew that, you know, 250 words a day equals a novel in a year, mm. you know, and, and it gets easier if you write every single day. Like even now I got, I've got to go to Ohio tomorrow. So I'm going to, my writing time is going to get cut short. When I miss a day, it, it hurts me when I sit back down again, it's harder to get going again. But when you write, you know, like when I was writing 200 words a day and I pushed myself to write 300 words then I pushed myself to write 500 and before you know it, you're at a couple thousand words. And it, and it really, you know, I knock it out in an hour or two. You know, it's not not a very time-consuming thing. It's just it's, it's like a muscle. You just have to train it and work it, just like you would any 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 other exercise. So I'm sure you're inspired by uh, other books and authors uh, when you're writing. But we were wondering if you're ever inspired by film and how that inspiration maybe differs from literary inspiration. I, I definitely watch a, a lot of movies. Our house in Florida actually had a movie theater in it. I, I built a thousand square foot movie theater on the side of our house because I, I wow. love love movies. Um, I, I hate. We love to visit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't own that house anymore. We, oh. moved, we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, but I, when I watch a movie, particularly one that's been made from a book, I tend to you know try and figure out what translated and what didn't. Um, so you take something like Silence of the Lambs, um, yeah, terrific, terrific book. I mean, it, when you read the dialogue in there, one of the things that Thomas Harris does really well is you, you can read his dialogue and you know exactly who's saying what without any type of dialogue tags or any other clue. Um, his, his, it, everything just translates perfectly. Um, when they translated that movie to the screen, it also translated well. Um, you know, they, they, there wasn't much that was really cut out. You know, they ended up getting most of that book onto the, onto film. Um, a lot of times that doesn't happen. And, you know, to me, that tells you what worked and what didn't work, you know, what resonated with the producers and directors, what they felt they had to squeeze out of that book, you know, what they needed to use or could use and what, you know, should end up on the, the cutting room floor. And when I write a novel, you know, writing the book is, is maybe 50% of the, you know, the, the process. Editing is really where the, you know, the, the book turns into an actual solid novel or it doesn't. Uh, and it's very difficult as a writer to, to cut things that you've, you've written. Um, but I typically cut like fourth monkey. I think the final word count was 126,000. I probably cut 40,000 words out of that book. Um, and that's, that's fairly normal for me. Um, I'm what they call a pantser. I tend to overwrite and I, I don't, you know, I don't really know where my story is going. And again, this is something else that I got from King, um, in on writing, he says something like if, you know, he doesn't know where the story is going, there's no way the reader is going to be able to figure it out. Um, and I, I think that holds true. I, I know a lot of writers who outline very detailed, um, you know, a couple pages sometimes per chapter in an outline. Um, but I think our subconscious is able to pick that up. You know, the fact that the writer knows where the story is going, they end up dropping breadcrumbs that our subconscious can pick up as we're reading. And we tend to figure out that story a little bit easier. Um, so I tend to not plot out my, my novels too far in advance. Um, I try to, to make it up as I go. Um, and then again, editing is, is key. So... As our first guest, I feel like I have to ask you, uh, what is your favorite adaptation and is it close to the source material and what do you think makes for a good adaptation in general? 
Yeah, I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, it, I guess it depends on the, the genre. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is probably, from a thriller standpoint, my favorite book and movie. I think if I were to start assigning points to things, that one would end up on the top of a couple different lists. <laughs> um, and, and Thomas Harris in general, I mean, a lot of people haven't read Black Sunday, his very first book, because it's got nothing to do with Hannibal Lecter. Um, but, you know, again, it's a very solid read I mean, from, from start to finish. It's very visual. Um, and it's, you know, he just, he's got it, he's got a talent. I mean, it may take him seven, eight years or a dozen years to put out a book, but you know, it's worth the wait for sure. Um, my favorite movie is actually Eddie and the Cruisers. I don't know if you guys have ever even heard of this movie. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it though. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a cult classic and it's probably, I don't even know what year, some 80 something, um, you know, about a, about a rocker who dies. Um, and they think that he may have actually faked his death and it's told through a series of flashbacks. Um, and it just, it's got a couple elements that really hit home for me. It's got a, a great musical soundtrack cause it's, it's all fifties, uh, rock music. Um, but just the way the story is told through present or present storyline and, and flashbacks to the past, um, it's, it's cut together very well. Um, and I think that's important when you're writing a book to be able to do that exact same thing. I, I tend to approach my books, even though they're novels, I approach them almost as a movie. You know, how, how would this, how does this appeal visually? Um, every scene, I try to think of it that way and, and keep the reader interested, you know, as if they were watching a feature film. In The Fourth Monkey, you use diary entries as a form of narrative. And then in some of your other books, you've used kind of multiple perspectives or two storylines kind of happening simultaneously. What do you like about this um, storytelling um, function? And would you use it in any of your future projects? I'll definitely revisit that. Um, it, it's something that's a lot of fun for me to do. From a writing standpoint, it makes things you know a little bit easier because if I get stuck on one you know, on this particular storyline, I can jump over and, and work on the diary for a little bit and still get my word count out. And if I get stuck on the diary, I jump back to the other part. Uh, and it's it's a cool way you know I think to to tell a, a backstory um, in, in a novel. So I, I definitely you know rely on that in Fourth Monkey um, and even in Forsaken pretty heavily. Uh, but it, it's a tricky thing to do. I mean, in Forsaken in particular, you know, I've got two separate storylines going on. They start off completely separate, but at, by the end of the book, they both intertwine, you know, very much together. They're, they're necessary in order to, for the, the whole book to work. And to think, you know, to actually construct that in your head is, is very <laughs> difficult to do. Um, so it, it can be stressful and it can be, you know, hard, but at the same time, it's rewarding when you, when you knock it out. Um, the book that I'm writing right now is actually very linear. There's no diary entries in it at all. Um, you know, it starts at one point, ends at another point. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun writing it, but it, to a large extent, it was to give myself a little break from, from, you know, such a complicated storyline and just tell a story. Um, so you said that you used to live in Florida, but you're in Pittsburgh now. So what brought you to Pittsburgh and do you like living here? We do. And, and it was actually the writing that, that brought us here. When I was in Florida, my last day job that I had, I was chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm, which sounds as, as horrible. As, <laughs> as, you know, it's about the, the equivalent of being responsible for the lost luggage at the airport. You know, it's one of those jobs. Everybody's thankful that you're there, but nobody ever wants to have to come and see you. Um, it pays really good. And that was actually, I think, one of my mistakes in, in this world. You know, Stephen King, when he started off, he worked in laundromats. He worked these horrible jobs. And I think that motivated him. You know, I was collecting a a very nice salary. And I kind of fell into that, that trap. I mean, we had a, a really nice house I and mean, our house was 4,000 some square feet. We had nice cars. We had everything you could possibly want. But at the same time, our monthly nut was, I think, seven to $8,000 a month. Um, you know, which is, you know, you have to sustain that. So now all of a sudden you're caught, you know, you've got this big mortgage payment, you've got all the car payments. Now you're stuck working this type of job. 
um, to my wife and me, we actually made a conscious decision. We, we had some rental properties up here in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, she's originally from here. She was born up here in Pittsburgh. Um, and we decided to sell everything that we had in Florida, move into one of our little rentals and, you know, allow me to be able to spend, you know, my, my full time doing nothing but writing. Um, and luckily it paid off, you know, really quick. Um, but that was the, the main catalyst behind it. And I'm originally from Illinois. I was born right outside of Chicago. And I, I just missed the seasons. My dad was a contractor and he moved us to Florida because he couldn't take the winters anymore. Um, I was 14 at the time. And I just, you know, in Florida, it's, it's just, you got hot and hot and hotter and you, know, you break <laughs> a sweat. Yeah. You break a sweat working, you know, walking to the mailbox and you know, it's 90 degrees on Christmas. It's just that, you know, I missed having snow outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we came back up here, we, you know, we didn't really turn back. We, we love it up here. So uh, your book coming out uh, in a year is a prequel to Dracula, and I know you uh, can't talk about it as much as you might want to or as much as we might want you to, <laughs> but uh, what can you tell us about it so far? That's about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it sold um, to Putnam. Putnam is putting the, the book out here in the States. Um, Paramount stepped in uh, and bought the film rights, uh, I think it was the same week as the, the, the book rights sold, um, with Andy Machete directing, who's the same guy who did It for Stephen King. Um, and that's about all I'm allowed to talk about right now. I mean, yeah. it's um, one of those things that we're, we're going to definitely, you know, once it gets closer to release, you know, I'll be able to talk about a lot more. Um, it was a crazy process. Uh, I got to see Bram's original notes from when he wrote Dracula. Uh, I got to visit um, Paul Allen, invited uh, Dacre Stoker and I out to Seattle to see the actual Dracula manuscript, the original, um, things like that. But, you know, unfortunately, right now, I'm not allowed to talk about a whole lot related to that project. Um, oh, one question, and you can uh, say so you can't answer this if you can't, but sure. um, you're co-writing it with uh, uh, Dacre Stoker. And um, what's that like to write a book with someone and to co-write? You could talk a little bit about that. It's actually pretty easy, um, and I think that comes from the the book doctor days. I mean, I've worked with so many different people on different levels. I've worked with people that just had an outline for a story. I've I've ghostwritten for celebrities where you know they just told me a story and then I, I had to write it down. Um, Dacre and I fell into a, a pretty pretty strong rhythm, um, and we we didn't have any any difficulty getting this this story down on paper. And it was really like there I was working with two co writers because Bram was was heavily involved too. We we used quite a few of his his actual notes and, and thoughts that he had for the original book. With the character like Dracula that has seen so many uh different interpretations both in film and literature, uh what was it like to take this on and did you try to absorb all, everything that was out there and either, you know, try to mine it for possible ideas or know what to ignore, or did you kind of just ignore all of it and try to come up with whatever came naturally? I, I really had to tune it all out. Um, you know, I, vampires don't sparkle. They're not, they're not <laughs> supposed to. Um, yeah, we went back to Bram's original notes. You know, he, he's actually got a list in his notes of, of, you know, vampire traits, you know, like they, they can't see their reflection. They can't do this. They can't do that. And he's got all of that written down. Um, they can walk in sunlight, um, which is, you know, one of those things that there was a Bram got ripped off pretty heavily. Dracula, when it first came out, it wasn't really that popular when he was alive. It actually took off after he died. Um, the movie Nosferatu was a, a big catalyst. Uh, his wife ended up suing over that and, and, um, uh, won the case and actually blocked the movie. They were supposed to destroy every cut of it uh, because it was such a blatant ripoff of his book. Um, luckily for you know f- 
buffs like me, it, you know, it did survive, you know, so you can still watch it. Um, that was actually the first movie where vampires, you know, burst into flames or couldn't be in sunlight. Um, and it's been, you know, the storyline has been taken and bastardized a little bit over, over the years. Everybody kind of adds their own little twist to it. So it was fun to be able to get back to the roots of it and, you know, tell the story that Bram really wanted to tell. Uh, it's really exciting that the director uh, and, and producers of it are um, tapped to direct this uh, adaptation of it because it was uh, such a well-made uh, horror film, kind of a higher-budget horror film that did really well with audiences, and it was exciting to see that. I, I imagine, have you gotten to see it yet? We, we did. Um, my wife was actually pregnant with our first child, and our baby was due on September 15th. Uh, and the movie, I think, came out on the 9th. Um, my, and my wife is a huge Stephen King fan, and, and she's like, there is no way I'm having this baby before I get to see this movie. You know, she was saying that from the first time that we heard the due date, she's like, when does the movie come out? And it's like, not when does the baby do, but when's that movie come out? Um, I was fully prepared to have to pick up the phone and call Andy Machete or one of these other guys and try and get it on Blu-ray because my wife just had a baby or something. But luckily, we were able to sneak into a, a, a pre-screening of it about a week before it came out and, and got to see it. And, and I loved it. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of the original, but again, you know, it's, you, you got to read the book. Um, the, you know, the, the first movie was a, a, a miniseries and, and they took a lot of liberties with that for budgeting concerns or storyline that has to be cut. It's not Stephen King's story anymore. It's an adaptation of his, of his story. Uh, and this was too, but I, I thought this was a very, very well done one. Um, and they did a great job of bringing it into, you know, something that would resonate with today's audience. And I'm really curious to see what they do with the, the second half of it. So, um, in uh, looking up some information about you, <laughs> researching, uh, I read that you've worked with um, police officers, uh, law enforcement in general, um, for doing research on your books. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I actually kind of fell into that. I, I went to my 25-year high school reunion, and I found out that this girl that I knew in high school had been murdered in Tampa um, she, in uh, 2007, um, and this was 2009. Um, and her case was cold. They had no lead. Somebody had stabbed her a couple of times, and they buried her in a shallow grave behind a parking lot. And the police literally had nothing. Um, and you know, this really took me by surprise. It was somebody I lost touch with, but somebody I was really close to in, in high school. Um, so I called her sister, and I talked to her, and I talked to her mom, just trying to figure out what was going on. And after I got off that phone call, I was like, "Well, how can I help?" Um, yeah, and you know, I guess that's not everybody's initial thought. Uh, most people tend to steer clear of this kind of thing. But you know, I knew that you know my friend had kids. You know, they were you know now don't have a mother. Um, you know, it, it was it was a difficult thing for me to process, um, and I just felt like I could help. Um, so I ended up coming up with this harebrained idea. Um, I I started thinking about or about about killers in general. Um, and, you know, this idea popped into my head, you know, most killers tend to insinuate themselves in the police investigation to try and figure out what's going on. Um, so I figured that the killer probably at some point had some kind of contact with the police. Um, but I wanted to figure out a way to capitalize on that. So I started brainstorming a little bit. And I came up with an idea for a website um, called whokilledme.tv. Um, I've got a pretty heavy computer programming background. So I, in this website, I created code that basically allows me to tell anytime somebody looks at the page, I can tell where they're physically located. So they don't have to click on anything. They don't have to you know, provide any information. All they have to do is look at that page on their mobile device, on their computer or whatever. And I can pull a latitude and longitude from that with their IP address and I can figure out where they're actually standing when they do it. Um, so the idea was, okay, now I've got this website. If I can get people to look at it, you know, a normal person might look at that website once or twice, but the bad guy might go back to it over and over again if they feel that it's something that can help them get, get insight into where the police are. 
Um, then I start brainstorming on the name and came up with who killed me.tv. And it was that you know, I had the who killed me part, but when I got the dot TV, you know, it totally by default because dot com was taken. That's where the idea for a television show came into my head. Um, so I called a friend of mine who was a producer on True Blood um, for HBO out in California. And I told her, well, you know, I'm thinking about creating a television show or a fake television show um, that investigates cold case crimes just to try and draw attention to this particular murder. And she said, well, why don't we actually film it for real? I mean, why, why do a fake television show when we could do a real one? Um, so she sent a camera crew out to, to Tampa for me. Um, I contacted all the local television stations and newspapers and everybody and told them, you know, we're filming this pilot episode for Who Killed Me TV about my friend's murder in a cold case. You know, if you want to follow us around for the day, you can. Um, so we ended up with all the newspapers and everybody, all the media in that area, basically following us for a day. And we ended up with about 200 volunteers willing to pass out flyers and help gather information. And we just kind of combed the town and, and just knocked on a bunch of doors. And within four days, we figured out who, who murdered her. Um, we knew where she died. We knew who killed her. We knew how they killed her. We knew how they disposed of the body. We got all the information. Um, and things just kind of escalated from there. I've worked with the police on a number of different cases since then on different levels. Um, I, I tend to charge a dollar when I, when I work with a police organization as, as a fee um, for my, basically for my time so I can write off my expenses as a, you know, as a business expense. But other than that, I just kind of give them a fresh pair of eyes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most police, especially when they're wrapped up in an investigation, you know, they tend to see things through um, you know, like a monovision. Um, and, you know, the fact that I'm approaching this from, you know, a writer's standpoint, you know, from a creative standpoint, you know, I can see areas that they may not have thought of and maybe lead them in an area that they may not have thought of. Uh, and, and that seems to help quite a bit. So I, I, I do it as often as I can. That story is so crazy. It's almost hard to believe that something like that could even happen. Did you feel like when it was happening that it was almost like out of your control and just snowballing into this? thing like that became even bigger than you and um, your friend? Well, th things actually got really crazy. Um, when we figured out where she was killed, we told the lead detective and he sent a CSI team into this particular house to investigate and he had them check a different room in the house. It's like we told them specifically she was murdered in this room. You know, she stabbed, she was stabbed here. She wandered into here. She fell over and bled out here. He had them look at a totally different room in the house. We couldn't figure out why. The owner of the house was right there next to him saying, you're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong room. This guy didn't care. Um, when we gave him the, the car that she was transported in, he had another CSI team look at it and then he released the car immediately to the owners. The car disappeared within hours of that and still hasn't been found since. Um, but he just kind of kept half-assing things. When we t gave him suspects to interview, he would talk to them at their home for a couple of minutes and you know, write it off as if he had done it. Uh, this kept happening for almost two years. Um, and eventually we figured out why. A, a federal indictment came down. Um, turns out in Tampa, if, if, you, you know, if somebody dies of natural causes, like in a hospital, that hospital files that information with the IRS and codes them as deceased and starts out that, that whole paper trail starts off. If they're murdered up there, it's up to the lead detective to actually start off that paperwork. So rather than file it, he was sticking it in a desk drawer, and then he was filing tax returns on all these victims that he was supposed to be investigating. So over the course of a 23-year career, he was filing tax returns on all these victims. Um, his wife was actually involved. She was collecting the money, and she was laundering it through the prison system. She would take the cash, and she would turn it into these little ATM cards that they use in prison, and then they would sell those cards for 50 cents on the dollar. Um, so hundreds of thousands of dollars um, out the window. And it's, it's still playing out. Like I said, a federal indictment came down. They've, they've charged him, um, but they still haven't actually had a, a case. I don't think he's actually pled one way or the other yet because they're still trying to unravel everything. 
it might be a story that's too close to home for you or might not be interesting because it's a nonfiction and that, you know, you're the main character almost. But is it something you've thought about writing about because it's just such an interesting uh, true story? Yeah, I've actually got it on paper, um, but it's it's a very difficult story for me to tell. Um, yeah, mainly because, you know, first of all, I was close with her and I know her sister, her kids now are, you know, they're in their teens and they're, they're getting ready to go off to college. So like, there's a lot of dynamics to, you know, dealing with real people on that level. And, you know, like I, I kind of, I'd love to put the story out there, but at the same time, I don't want them to have to live with that for the rest of their lives. I mean, they already drive by the house where their mom was murdered. You know, how, how do you do that on a daily basis? You know, and, you know, if I were to write a book about it and that becomes a movie or something, now all of a sudden I'm adding life to something that they may want to put in their, their rearview mirror. Now, not, not that they want to forget their mother in any way, but, you know, at some point you've got to put that to bed. And I think knowing who actually killed her is what was really important to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't publish a book, I'm sure that the experiences and then your um, further experiences with the police has really helped you to write, I know specifically the fourth monkey, there's a lot of police procedural going on. And so did that help you um, when you were writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I really picked up on in in working with police officers is their mentality and and also their humor. There's a really dark sense of humor going on there. Um, At first, I was kind of turned off by it until I realized, you know, that it was really just a defense mechanism. And I started talking to one of the detectives about it pretty in depth. Uh, He had about 20 years behind him. And he told me that the ones that last in that particular business are the ones who are able to go into a crime scene and make jokes. You know, the, the ones that walk in there and are so hit hard, you know, that they take it home and emotionally it just tears them up. They can't do it for more than a year or two. They just It's just too much. Um, so they use that humor to kind of deflect and, and to turn it into something that's not quite so real, but, you know, just real enough where they can still work the case, but not, you know, where it's, you know, digging and pulling their heartstrings every day. Um, and that was, you know, something that I think translated quite a bit into Fourth Monkey and some of the other uh, serial killer type books that I've worked on. So we were just wondering if there's anything you can tell us about either uh, Dracul or the upcoming Fourth Monkey sequel that maybe you haven't told anyone else that we could use to pitch this as an exclusive interview or uh, <laughs> JD spills all, or is there any kind of even a snippet of uh, information? Uh, it would take a lot of alcohol to make something like that. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. Yeah. I had to ask. <laughs> um, I, I can tell you that there's a, a chapter, we call it the lost chapter from Fourth Monkey, that's hidden away on my website. Um, that, you know, you can find, but you have to really look hard to, to get to it. And that'll give you a little bridge between the two books into what Bishop has been up to and, and you know, the characters there. I was reading about that on uh, a Q&A you were doing on Goodreads, and I mm-hmm. hadn't heard about that. I was like, oh, my, because I uh, listened to it on audiobook. And so I was like, oh, my God, I have to I have to hunt that down. I haven't found it yet, but I'm really interested now. Well, I'm trying to figure out what to do with some of that material. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, that I, I took about 40,000 words out of the fourth monkey. Um, you know, they were good words, but they just weren't necessary to tell the whole story. There, there's, there's a lot of di- um, information related to the diary um, that's not in the book, but it's it's cool stuff. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out the best way to, to handle that. I'd like to get it out there um, eventually. I actually got the idea from Garth Brooks, of all people. Uh, I don't know if really? you're country music fans at all, but you know he's got a couple of songs where he has uh, lost verses, and the only way you can actually hear them is if you go to his concert. They're not on any of the records, any of the albums, but if you go to his concert, you can hear them. And every, you know, the first time I heard that, I was like, that's the hokiest thing I've ever heard of. And I went to one of his concerts, and then I heard 40,000 people singing this verse that's not on an 
in the album, but they all know the words. I'm like, this guy's onto something. Um, so yeah, so I, I hit a chapter on the website. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, is there anything else that you want to say? Um, anything you want to mention about any of your upcoming projects or the fourth monkey or anything? Uh, not at this point. I, things are going to hopefully quiet down a little bit for me so that I can get this next book that I'm working on finished um, and then get started on the, the third and hopefully the, the final book in the Fourth Monkey um, trilogy. Um, I'm considering going back and telling the backstory there, so maybe writing two or three prequels. Um, I haven't quite Making decided. Making it a numerical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, the next one's called The Fifth to Die, so you might be on something there. Yeah. Yeah. Go back three, two, one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being with us, JD, and for uh, shining a light on uh, life of an author selling their movie rights and just the writing process and everything you could uh, share with us. Oh, absolutely. It was fun. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. If you'd like more information on JD Barker or to follow him online, you can follow him on Twitter at JD Barker or go to his website, jdbarker.com, for more information on future projects or upcoming books. Cover to Credits publishes bi-weekly, so our next episode is going to be back to our regular format, and we'll be doing Slumdog Millionaire, or the, as the book is known, Q&A. We're really excited to do this episode with you guys, so um, tune in in two weeks for our newest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Cover2Credits, that's the number two. You can find us on Facebook as well, and email us at CoverToCreditsPod at gmail.com. And we're super excited to have this episode for you guys. So thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.